Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Tonight on Drama on One, we celebrate the Ulysses centenary with a selection of episodes introduced by playwright Michael West. The RTE Players 1982 recording, directed by William Stiles, was recently described by John Phipps in The Spectator as a masterpiece, a rare, enduring example of radio drama as art. Before we hear the ensemble in full flight, here is Michael West, and this week his focus is on the Calypso episode. Hello there, my name is Michael West. I'm a playwright and translator, and it's my great pleasure to introduce these excerpts from the fabulous RTE players' recordings of Ulysses. As you may know, we've now had over 100 years of people telling us whether or not they've read or not read Ulysses. And as interesting as that must be, Ulysses endures for the simple reason that there are pages in it that people like coming back to again and again. And whether the book is an old friend or a distant cousin you're supposed to look up but who you've never got around to calling, if you haven't heard the classic 1982 Radio Air and Players recordings of Ulysses, you're in for a rare treat. First described to me as one of the jewels in the crown of the National Broadcaster, these recordings were made to celebrate the centenary of James Joyce's birth on February the 2nd, 1882, which was also the 60th anniversary of the publication of Ulysses on his 40th birthday, February the 2nd, 1922. And here we are, 40 years later after those recordings, and this already sounds like an extract from Ithaca, where Stephen and Bloom work out their age difference and what it'll be X years from now. But the point is, these recordings function as a vital hinge between the original world of Joyce and our time. In fact, the distinguished journalist Dennis Staunton, who was a former member of the RTE players whose voices featured in the recordings, remarks that some prudent members of the company you're about to hear had actually met and known some of the named minor characters in the novel. And in a similar way, the recordings also document the acting and speaking style of a generation that links the world of Leopold Bloom and ourselves to make us feel connected. In 1982, the Radio Aaron players were effectively being wound down for classically familiar reasons, obsolescence, changing times, pay disputes, when they took on the task of recording the book. And it was performed directly from the book, not a script, due to copyright and permission issues, which somehow makes it more human when you're listening to it. The photos of the recording show them all holding copies, like a cross between a book club and a group of carol singers. There were 38 actors who played over 200 parts under the direction of Willie Stiles, a New Zealand actor who trained in RADA and moved to Dublin to work with McLeamore and Edwards at the gate. By all accounts, a small, slight man with a stammer, he found his true vocation as the director of radio drama, winning international and what is much harder, local recognition for his gifts. Willie Stiles, together with Roland McHugh as dramaturg, divided the text into its many parts, a task which is ingeniously and invisibly accomplished, using different voices for narration and speaking roles, pointing up the shifts in point of view or internal versus audible speech in ways that sound natural and unforced and are beautifully clear. This aspect of the recording was also the result of Stiles and the sound engineer Marcus MacDonald working seamlessly together with the actors to make the whole thing cohere. The technical constraints of the 80s were used extremely creatively which is our way of saying that they recorded and edited this vast amount of material on actual tape. But the atmospheres and sound effects are discreet and on the money, and the performances are exquisite. Some of these names will be known to people, but many are not familiar to us now, and I want to mention some of them here. Connor Farrington, a most Joycean name. Bloom is played by Ronnie Walsh. Peg Monaghan plays Molly. The enormous length of the final recordings over 30 hours, meant that the performances are already an act and art of endurance. The importance of the natural placing of the voice was vital to preserve not only the actor's vocal cords, but to chime with the everyday conversational tone of the inner musings of the characters. This natural use of the voice is in true bel canto tradition, one that Joyce would approve of, but it's given added subtlety and power by the actor's skilful use of the mics. In short, it's clear from every sentence and breath that we're in the presence of great masters of their craft. The sheer rightness of the way the words and phrases slip past the ear is one of the enormous pleasures of the experience and the actors make it sound the most obvious and easy thing in the world. It's just beautiful. The episode you're about to hear is unofficially but everywhere known as Calypso. It's chapter four, the first chapter in Bloom's Odyssey that makes up the central 12-chapter section of the 18-chapter book and you will undoubtedly know several of the names of these chapters. But as you're also probably aware, neither numbers nor names are listed in the text. And this is one of the most Joycean and Dublin jokes about Ulysses. 
Although he used the Homeric chapter titles while composing them, Joyce removed them quite late in the publishing process. He felt they were too prescriptive and foregrounded the Homeric analogue too much, which is absolutely fair enough, though since he did call it Ulysses, it's an easy mistake to make. A possibly unintended side effect is to recreate a very Dublin or Irish experience, which is that something everyone uses to navigate is nowhere written, because it's assumed, sure, everybody knows that. Since Joyce was a systems freak, it's not giving anything away to say the book has three main characters. Leopold Bloom, a 36-year-old advertising salesman of mixed Hungarian-Jewish and Irish Protestant descent, married to Marion Tweedy, known to the entire universe as Molly Bloom, and Stephen Dedalus, a disaffected ex-student alter ego for Joyce who appeared in Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man and the slightly burnt Stephen Hero. This trinity is reflected in the structure of the book, which consists of three sections, broadly speaking, morning, day and night, with the morning and night sections functioning as a short prologue and epilogue of three chapters each, and the day or middle section as the spine of the thing, the Odyssean wanderings of Bloom, with twelve chapters linking morning and nightfall, written in different styles. The first section famously introduces Stephen Dedalus in the Martello Tower with Buck Mulligan, Stephen Dedalus teaching and getting some money, and then Stephen Dedalus walking along Sandyman Beach, musing about the ineluctable modality of the visible, and driving most readers away from the joys that await them. And what joy when we turn the page and meet Mr. Leopold Bloom, who eats with relish the inner organs of beast and fowl. It's pretty clear from Joyce's early critics and contemporaries, as it is for most of us confronting the book for the first time, that the third chapter with Stephen on the beach defeats most readers. But to put down the book without encountering Leopold Bloom and his slumbering wife Molly is to deprive oneself of one of the great pleasures of literature. Listen to one of the best noticers noticing things. The tangible world is evoked with an extraordinary sense of weight and texture. The construction of a three-dimensional kitchen through the musings of a man thinking and talking to his cat is one of the most astonishing feats of fiction. Quite simply, this is one of the finest performances of writing ever committed to paper. And now to tape. Enjoy. Playwright Michael West discussing Calypso, episode four from James Joyce's Ulysses. And now we'll hear an excerpt from the episode itself as we visit number seven Eccles Street to meet Leopold and Molly Bloom. Ronnie Walsh is Bloom and Peg Monaghan plays Molly. And just a note that the programme contains some strong language along the way. Mr. Leopold Bloom ate with relish the inner organs of beasts and fowls. He liked thick giblet soup, nutty gizzards, a stuffed roast heart, liver slices fried with crust crumbs, fried hen cod's rolls. Most of all, he liked grilled mutton kidneys, which gave to his palate a fine tang of faintly scented yogi. Kidneys were in his mind as he moved about the kitchen softly, writing her breakfast things on the humpy tray. Gelid light and air were in the kitchen, but out of doors gentle summer morning everywhere. Made him feel a bit peckish. The coals were reddening. Another slice of bread and butter. Three, four, right. She didn't like her plate full. Right. He turned from the tray, lifted the kettle off the hob, and set it sideways on the fire. It sat there, dull and squat. Its spout stuck out. Cup of tea soon. Good mouth dry. The cat walked stiffly round the leg of the table with tail on high. Meow. Oh, there you are, Mr. Bloom said, turning from the fire. The cat mewed in answer and stalked again stiffly round the leg of the table, mewing. Just how she stalks over my writing table. Purr. Scratch my head. Purr. Mr. Bloom watched curiously, kindly, the lithe black form. Clean to see. The glossopher sleek hide, the white button under the butterfer tail, the green flashing eyes. He bent down to her, 
his hands on his knees. Milk for the pussin? He said. Meow, the cat cried. They call them stupid. They understand what we say better than we understand them. She understands all she wants to. Vindictive, too. Wonder what I look like to her. Height of a tower? No, she can jump me. Afraid of the chickens, she's, he said mockingly. Afraid of the chook-chooks. I never saw such a stupid pussins as the pussins. Cruel. A nature. Curious mice never squeal. Seem to like it. Meow, the cat said loudly. She blinked up out of her avid, shame-closing eyes, mewing plaintively and long, showing him her milk-white teeth. He watched the dark eye-slits narrowing with greed until her eyes were green stones. Then he went to the dresser, took the jug Hanlon's milkman had just filled for him, poured warm bubbled milk on a saucer, and set it slowly on the floor. Grrr, she cried, running to lap. He watched the bristles shining wildly in the weak light as she tipped three times and licked lightly. Wonder is it true if you clip them they can't mouse after? Why? They shine in the dark, perhaps, the tips, or kind of feelers in the dark, perhaps. He listened to her licking lap. Ham and eggs, no. No good eggs with this drought. Want pure, fresh water. Thursday, not a good day either for a mutton kidney at Buckley's. Fried with butter, a shake of pepper. Better a pork kidney at Glugax while the kettle's boiling. She lapped slower, then licking the saucer clean. Why are their tongues so rough? To lap better, all porous holes? Nothing she can eat. He glanced round him. No. On quietly creaky boots, he went up the staircase to the hall, paused by the bedroom door. She might like something tasty. Tin bread and butter she likes in the morning. Still, perhaps, once in a way. He said softly in the bare hall. I'm going round the corner, back in a minute. And when he had heard his voice say it, he added, You don't want anything for breakfast? A sleepy, soft grunt answered. Mm. No, she didn't want anything. He heard then a warm, heavy sigh. Softer, she turned over, and the loose brass quoits of the bedstead jingled. Must get those settled, really. Pity, all the way from Gibraltar. Forgotten any little Spanish she knew. Wonder what her father gave for it. Old style, I. Yes, of course, bought it at the governor's auction. Got a short knock. Hard as nails at the bargain, old Tweedy. Yes, sir, at Plevner that was. I rose from the ranks, sir, and I'm proud of it. Still, he had brains enough to make that corner in stamps. Now that was Farsi. His hand took his hat from the peg over his initialed heavy overcoat, and his lost property offers second-hand waterproof. Stamps, sticky-back pictures. Dare say lots of officers are in the swim, too. Course they do. The sweated legend in the crown of his hat told him mutely, Plastos high-grade. Ha! He peeped quickly inside the leather headband. White slip of paper, quite safe. On the doorstep, he felt in his hip pocket for the latchkey. Oh, not there. In the trousers I left off. Must get it. Potato I have. Creaky wardrobe. No use disturbing her. She turned over sleepily that time. He pulled the hall door to after him very quietly. Uh, more, till the footleaf dropped gently over the threshold. A limp lid. Look shut. All right till I come back, anyhow. He crossed to the bright side, avoiding the loose cellar flap of number 75. The sun was nearing the steeple of George's church. 
be a warm day, I fancy. Especially in these black clothes, feel it more. Black conducts, reflects, refracts, is it, the heat. Oh, but I couldn't go in that light suit, make a picnic of it. His eyelids sank quietly often as he walked in happy warmth. Boland's bread van delivering with trays our daily. But she prefers yesterday's loaves, turnovers crisp, crowns hot. Makes you feel young. Somewhere in the east, early morning, set off at dawn, travel round in front of the sun, steal a day's march on him, keep it up forever, never grow a day older, technically. Walk along a strand... Strange land, come to a city gate, sentry there, old rancor too, old Tweedy's big moustaches leaning on a long kind of spear. Wander through ornate streets, turbaned faces going by, dark caves of carpet shops, big man, Turco the Terrible, seated cross-legs, smoking a coiled pipe, cries of sellers in the streets. Drink water scented with fennel, sherbet. Wander along all day. Might meet a robber or two. Well, meet him. Getting on to sundown, the shadows of the mosques along the pillars, priest with a scroll rolled up, a shiver of the trees signal the evening wind. I pass on. Fading gold sky. A mother watches from her doorway. She calls her children home in their dark language. High wall, beyond, strings twanged. Night sky moon, violet, color of Molly's new garters. Strings. Listen, a girl playing one of these instruments, what do you call them? Dulcimers. I pass. Probably not a bit like it, really. Kind of stuff you read in the track of the sun. Sunburst on the title page. He smiled, pleasing himself. What Arthur Griffith said about the headpiece over the Freeman leader, a home-rule sun rising up in the northwest from the laneway behind the Bank of Ireland. He prolonged his pleased smile. Ikey touched that home-rule sun rising in the northwest. He approached Larry O'Rourke's. From the cellar grating floated up the flabby gush of porter. Through the open doorway, the bar squirted out whiffs of ginger, tea dust, biscuit mush. Good house, however. Just the end of the city traffic. For instance, Macaulay's down there, NG as position. Of course, if they ran a tram line along the North Circular from the cattle market to the Keys, value would go up like a shot. Bald head over the blind. Cute old codger. No use canvassing him for an ad. Still, he knows his own business best. There he is, sure enough. My bowed Larry, leaning against the sugar bin in his shirt sleeves, watching the aproned curate swab up with mop and bucket. Simon Dedalus takes him off to a tea with his eyes screwed up. Do you know what I'm going to tell you? If what's that, Mr. O'Rourke? Do you know what? The Russians, they'd only be an eight o'clock breakfast for the Japanese. Stop and say a word about the funeral, perhaps. Sad thing about poor Dignam, Mr. O'Rourke. Turning into Dorset Street, he said freshly in greeting through the doorway, Good day, Mr. O'Rourke. Good day to you. Lovely weather, sir. Tis all that. Where do they get the money? Coming up, red-headed curates from the county Leitrim, rinsing empties and old man in the cellar. Then, lo and behold, they blossom out as Adam Finlaters or Dan Talents. Then think of the competition. General Thirst. Good puzzle would be cross Dublin without passing a pub. Save it, they can't. Off the drunks, perhaps. Put down three and carry five. What is that? A bob here and there, dribs and drabs. On the wholesale orders, perhaps. Doing a double shuffle with the town travellers. Square it with the boss and we'll split the job, see? How much would that tot to off the porter in the month? Say, ten barrels of stuff. Say he got ten percent off. More. Ten. Fifteen. He passed St. Joseph's National School. Brats clamour. 
Windows open. Fresh air helps memory. Or a lilt. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, K, E, L, M, N, O, P, Q, U, E, R, U, S, T, Y, O, U, V, W. Boys, are they? Yes. Inish Turk, Inish Shark, Inish Boffin. At their geography. Mine, Sleeve Bloom. He halted before Glugak's window, staring at the hanks of sausages, polonies, black and white. Fifty multiplied by... The figures whitened in his mind, unsolved. Displeased, he let them fade. The shiny links packed with force meat fed his gaze, and he breathed in tranquilly the lukewarm breath of cooked spicy pig's blood. A kidney oozed blood gouts on the willow-patterned dish, the last. He stood by the next-door girl at the counter. Would she buy it too, calling the items from a slip in her hand? Chapped washing soda and a pound and a half of Denny sausages. His eyes rested on her vigorous hips. Woods, his name is. Wonder what he does. Wife is oldish. New blood. No followers allowed. Strong pair of arms, whacking a carpet on the clothesline. She does whack it, my George, the way her crooked skirt swings at each whack. The ferret-eyed pork butcher folded the sausages he had snipped off with blotchy fingers, sausage pink. Sound meat there, like a store-fed heifer. He took up a page from the pile of cut sheets. The model farm at Kinneret on the lake shore of Tiberius can become ideal winter sanatorium. Moses Montefiore. I thought he was... Farmhouse. Wall round it. Blurred cattle cropping. He held the page from him. Interesting. <laughs> Read it nearer. The blurred cropping cattle. The page rustling. A young white heifer. Those mornings in the cattle market, the beasts lowing in their pens... Branded sheep, flop and fall of dung. The breeders in hobnail boots trudging through the litter, slapping a palm on a ripe-meated hindquarter. There's a prime one. Unpeeled switches in their hands. He held the page aslant patiently, bending his senses and his will, his soft subject gaze at rest. The crooked skirt swinging whack by whack by whack. The pork butcher snapped two sheets from the pile, wrapped up her prime sausages, and made a red grimace. Now, my miss, he said. She tendered a coin, smiling boldly, holding her thick wrist out. Thank you, my miss. And one shilling, threepence change. For you, please. Mr. Bloom pointed quickly. To catch up and walk behind her, if she went slowly, behind her moving hams. Pleasant to see first thing in the morning. Hurry up, damn it. Make hay while the sun shines. She stood outside the shop in sunlight and sauntered lazily to the right. He sighed on his nose. They never understand. Soda-chapped hands, crusted toenails too. Brown scapulars in tatters defending her both ways. The sting of disregard glowed to weak pleasure within his breast. For another... A constable off-duty cuddled her in Eccles Lane. They like them sizable. Prime sausage. Oh, please, Mr. Policeman, I'm lost in the wood. Threepence, please. His hand accepted the moist, tender gland and slid it into a side pocket. Then it fetched up three coins from his trousers pocket and laid them on the rubber prickles. They lay, were read quickly, and quickly slid, disc by disc, into the till. Thank you, sir. Another time. A speck of eager fire from Fox Eyes thanked him. He withdrew his gaze after an instant. No, better not. Another time. Good morning, he said, moving away. Good morning, sir. No sign. Gone. What matter? He walked back along Dorset Street, reading gravely. Agenda's Netame Planters Company... 
to purchase vast sandy tracts from Turkish government and plant with eucalyptus trees. Excellent for shade, fuel and construction. Orange groves and immense melon fields north of Jaffa. You pay eight marks and they plant a dunum of land for you with olives, oranges, almonds or citrons. Olives cheaper. Oranges need artificial irrigation. Every year you get a sending of the crop. Your name entered for life as owner in the book of the union. You pay ten down and the balance in yearly installments. Bleibtraustrasse 3-4, Berlin W-15. Nothing doing. Still, an idea behind it. He looked at the cattle, blurred in silver heat. Silvered, powdered olive trees. Quiet, long days. Pruning, ripening. Olives are packed in jars, eh? I have a few left from Andrews. Molly, spitting them out, knows the taste of them now. Oranges in tissue paper packed in crates. Citrons, too. Wonder is poor Citron still alive in St. Kevin's Parade, and Mastiansky with the old Sither. Pleasant evenings we had then. Molly in Citron's basket chair. Nice to hold cool waxen fruit. Hold in the hand. Lift it to the nostrils and smell the perfume. Like that heavy, sweet, wild perfume. Always the same year after year. They fetched high prices too, Moiselle told me. Arbutus Place, Pleasant Street. Pleasant old times. Must be without a flaw, he said, coming all that way. Spain, Gibraltar, Mediterranean, the Levant. Crates lined up on the quayside at Jaffa. Chap ticking them off in a book. Navvies handling them in soiled dungarees. There's a, what you call them out of... How do you do? Doesn't see. Chap, you know, just a salute. Bit of a bore. His back is like that Norwegian captain's. Wonder if I meet him today. Watering cart. To provoke the rain on earth as it is in heaven. A cloud began to cover the sun. Holy, slowly, holy. Grey, far. No, not like that. A barren land, bare waste. Volcanic lake, the Dead Sea. No fish, wheedlers sunk deep in the earth. No wind would lift those waves. Grey metal, poisonous, foggy waters. Brimstone, they called it, raining down. The cities of the plains, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam. All dead names. A dead sea in a dead land. Grey and old. Old now. It bore the oldest, the first race. A bent hag crossed from Cassidy's, clutching a noggin bottle by the neck. The oldest people wandered far away all over the earth. Captivity to captivity, multiplying, dying, being born everywhere. It lay there now. Now it could bear no more. Dead. An old woman's. The grey, sunken cunt of the world. Desolation. Grey horror seared his flesh. Folding the page into his pocket, he turned into Eccles Street, hurrying homeward. Cold oil slid along his veins, chilling his blood, age crusting him with a salt cloak. Well, I'm here now. Morning mouth bad images got up wrong side of the bed. Must begin those Sandow's exercises on the hands down. Blotchy brown brick houses... Number 80, still unlet. Why is that? Valuation is only 28. Towers, Battersby, North, MacArthur. Parlour windows plastered with bills, plasters on a sore eye. To smell the gentle smoke of tea, fume of the pan, sizzling butter, be near her ample bed-warmed flesh. Yes, yes. Quick, warm sunlight came running from Berkeley Road, swiftly in slim sandals along the brightening footpath. Runs, she runs to meet me, a girl with golden hair on the wind. Two letters and a card lay on the hall floor. He stopped and gathered them. Mrs. Marion Bloom. His quick heart slowed at once. Old hand, Mrs. Marion. Holy, 
Entering the bedroom, he half-closed his eyes and walked through warm yellow twilight towards her tousled head. Who are the letters for? He looked at them. Mullingar, Millie. A letter for me from Millie. He said carefully. And a card to you, and a letter for you. He laid her card and letter on the twill bedspread near the curve of her knees. Do you want the blind up? Letting the blind up by gentle tugs, halfway his backward eye saw her glance the letter and took it under her pillow. That do? He asked, turning. She was reading the card, propped on her elbow. She got the thing, she said. He waited till she had laid the card aside and curled herself back slowly with a snug sigh. Hurry up with that tea. I'm parched. The kettle is boiling, he said. But he delayed to clear the chair. Her striped petticoat tossed soiled linen and lifted all in an armful onto the foot of the bed. As he went down the kitchen stairs, she called, Poldy. What? Scald the teapot. On the boil, sure enough, a plume of steam from the spout. He scalded and rinsed out the teapot and put in four full spoons of tea, tilting the kettle then to let water flow in. Having set it to draw, he took off the kettle and crushed the pan flat on the live coals and watched the lump of butter slide and melt. While he unwrapped the kidney, the cat mewed hungrily against him. Give her too much meat, she won't mouse. Say they won't eat pork. Kosher. Here. He let the blood-smeared paper fall to her, and dropped the kidney amid the sizzling butter sauce. Pepper? He sprinkled it through his fingers ringwise from the chipped egg cup. Then he slit open his letter, glancing down the page and over. Thanks, new Tam. Mr. Cochlan, Lock Owl Picnic, Young Student, Blazes Boylan Seaside Girls. The tea was drawn. He filled his own moustache cup, Sham Crown Derby, smiling. Silly Millie's birthday gift. Only five she was then. No, wait, four. I gave her the ambroid necklace she broke putting pieces of folded brown paper in the letterbox for her. He smiled, pouring. Oh, Millie Bloom, you are my darling. You are my looking-glass from night to morning. I'd rather have you without a farthing than Katie Kyo with her ass and garden. Poor old Professor Goodwin. Dreadful old case. Still, he was a courteous old chap. Old-fashioned way he used to bow Molly off the platform. And the little mirror in his silk hat, the night Millie brought it into the parlour. Oh, look what I found in Professor Goodwin's hat. All we laughed. Sex breaking out even then. Pert little piece she was. He prodded a fork into the kidney and slapped it over then fitted the teapot on the tray. Its hump bumped as he took it up. Everything on it? Bread and butter, four? Sugar, spoon, her cream? Yes. He carried it upstairs, his thumb hooked in the teapot handle. Nudging the door open with his knee, he carried the tray in and set it on the chair by the bedhead. What a time you wear, she said. She set the brasses jingling as she raised herself briskly an elbow on the pillow. He looked calmly down on her bulk and between her large, soft bubs, sloping within her nightdress like a she-goat's udder. The warmth of her couched body rose on the air, mingling with the fragrance of the tea she poured. A strip of torn envelope peeped from under the dimpled pillow. In the act of going, he stayed to straighten the bedspread. Uh, who was the letter from? He asked. Bold hand, Marion. Oh, Boylan. He's bringing the programme. Uh, what are you singing? Lachy Darem with J.C. Doyle and Love's Old Sweet Song. Her full lips drinking smiled. 
rather stale smell that incense leaves next day like foul flower water. Would you like the window open a little? She doubled a slice of bread into her mouth, asking, What time is the funeral? Eleven, I think. I didn't see the paper. Following the pointing of her finger, he took up a leg of her soiled drawers from the bed. No? Then a twisted grey garter looped around a stocking. Rumpled, shiny sole. No, that book. Other stocking? Her petticoat? It must have fell down, she said. He felt here and there. Folio e non vore. Wonder if she pronounces that right. Volio. Not in the bed. Must have slid down. He stooped and lifted the balance. The book fallen sprawled against the bulge of the orange-keyed chamber pot. Show here. I put a mark in it. There's a word I wanted to ask you. She swallowed a draught of tea from her cup, held by knot handle, and, having wiped her fingertips smartly on the blanket, began to search the text with the hairpin till she reached the word. Met him what? he asked. Here. What does that mean? He leaned downwards and read near her polished thumbnail. Metempsychosis. Yes. Who's he when he's at home? Metempsychosis. It's Greek, from the Greek. That means the transmigration of souls. Oh, rocks. Tell us in plain words. <laughs> he smiled, glancing askance at her mocking eye. The same young eyes, the first night after the charades, dolphins barred. He turned over the smudged pages. Ruby, the pride of the ring. Hello, illustration. Fierce Italian with carriage whip. Must be Ruby, the pride of the... On the floor, naked, sheet kindly lent. The monster Maffei desisted and flung his victim from him with an oath. Cruelty behind it all. Doped animals. Trapeze at Hengler's. Had to look the other way. Mob gaping. Break your neck and we'll break our sides. Families of them. Bone them young so they met them psychosis. That we live after death. Our souls. That a man's soul after he dies. Dignam's soul. Did you finish it? Yes. There's nothing smutty in it. Is she in love with the first fellow all the time? Never read it. Do you, do you want another? Yes, get another of Paul de Cox's. Nice name he has. She poured more tea into her cup, watching its flow sideways. Must get that Capel Street Library book renewed, or they'll write to Carney, my guarantor. Reincarnation, that's the word. Some people believe that we go on living in another body after death, that we lived before. They call it reincarnation, that we all lived before on the earth thousands of years ago, or some other planet. They say we have forgotten it. Some say they remember their past lives. The sluggish cream wound curdling spirals through her tea. Better reminder of the word. Metempsychosis. An example would be better, an example. The bath of the nymph over the bed. Given away with the Easter number of photo bits. Splendid masterpiece in art colours. Tea before you put milk in. Not unlike her with her hair down. Slimmer. Three and six I gave for the frame. She said it would look nice over the bed. Naked nymphs. Greece. Greece and, for instance, all the people who lived then. He turned the pages back. Metempsychosis is what the ancient Greeks called it. They used to believe you could be changed into an animal or a tree, for instance. What they called nymphs, for example. Her spoon ceased to stir up the sugar. She gazed straight before her, inhaling through her arched nostrils. There's a smell of burn. Did you leave anything on the fire? The kidney, he cried suddenly. He fitted the book roughly into his inner pocket and, stubbing his toes against the broken commode, hurried out towards the smell, stepping hastily down the stairs with the flurried stork's legs. Pungent smoke shot up in an angry jet from a side of the pan. By prodding a prong of the fork under the kidney, he detached it and turned it turtle on his back. Only a little burned. <laughs> He tossed it off the pan onto a plate and let the scanty brown gravy trickle over it. Cup of tea now. 
He sat down, cut and buttered a slice of the loaf. He shawled away the burnt flesh and flung it to the cat. Then he put a forkful into his mouth, chewing with discernment the toothsome pliant meat. Done to a turn. A mouthful of tea. Then he cut away dyes of bread, sopped one in the gravy and put it in his mouth. What was that about some young student and a picnic? He creased out the letter at his side, reading it slowly as he chewed, sopping another dye of bread in the gravy and raising it to his mouth. Dearest Papley, thanks ever so much for the lovely birthday present. It suits me splendid. Everyone says I'm quite the belle in my new tam. I got Mummy's lovely box of creams and am writing. They are lovely. I am getting on swimming in the photo business now. Mr. Cochrane took one of me and Mrs. will send when developed. We did great biz yesterday. Fair day and all the beef to the heels were in. We are going to Lock Owl on Monday with a few friends to make a scrap picnic. Give my love to Mummy and to yourself a big kiss and thanks. I hear them at the piano downstairs. There is to be a concert in the Greville Arms on Saturday. There's a young student comes here some evenings named Bannon. His cousins are something are big swells. He sings Boylan's. I was on the pop of writing Blaze's Boylan's, song about those seaside girls. Tell him silly Millie sends my best respects. Must now close with fondest love, your fond daughter, Millie. P.S. Excuse bad writing. I'm in a hurry. Bye-bye. M. Fifteen yesterday. Curious fifteenth of the month, too. Her first birthday away from home. Separation. Remember the summer morning she was born, running to knock up Mrs. Thornton in Denzil Street. Jolly old woman. Lots of babies she must have helped into the world. She knew from the first poor little Rudy wouldn't live. Well, God is good, sir. She knew at once. He would be eleven now if he had lived. His vacant face stared pitying at the postscript. Excuse bad writing. Hurry. Piano downstairs. Coming out of her shell. Row with her in the XL cafe about the bracelet. Wouldn't eat her cakes or speak or look. Sauce box. He sopped other dyes of bread in the gravy and ate piece after piece of kidney. Twelve and six a week. Not much. Still, she might do worse. Music hall, stage. Young student. He drank a draught of cooler tea to wash down his meal. Then he read the letter again, twice. Oh, well, she knows how to mind herself. But if not, no, nothing happened. Of course it might. Wait in any case till it does. A wild piece of goods, her slim legs running up the staircase. Destiny, ripening now. Vain, very. He smiled with troubled affection at the kitchen window. Day I caught her in the street, pinching her cheeks to make them red. Anemic a little, was given milk too long. On the errands king that day round the kish, damned old tub pitching about, not a bit funky, her pale blue scarf loose in the wind with her hair, all dimpled cheeks and curls, your head it simply swirls, seaside girls, torn envelope, hand stuck in his trousers pocket, Jarvie off for the day, singing, friend of the family. Swirls, he says. Peer with lamps, summer evening, band. Those girls, those girls, those lovely seaside girls. Millie, too. Young kisses, the first. Far away now, past. Mrs. Marion. Reading, lying back now, counting the strands of her hair, smiling, braiding. A soft qualm regret flowed down his backbone, increasing. Will happen, yes. Prevent? Useless. Can't move. Girl's sweet light lips. Will happen, too. He felt the flowing qualm spread over him. Useless to move now. Lips kissed, 
kissing kissed full gluey woman's lips. Better where she is down there. Away. Occupy her. Wanted a dog to pass the time. Might take a trip down there. August bank holiday. Only two and six return. Six weeks off, however. Might work a press pass. Or through McCoy. The catch, having cleaned all her fur, returned to the meat-stained paper, nosed at it, and stalked at the door. She looked back at him, mewing. Wants to go out. Wait before a door. Sometime it will open. Let her wait. As the fidgets, electric, thunder in the air, was washing at her ear with her back to the fire, too. He felt heavy, full. Then a gentle loosening of his bowels. He stood up, undoing the waistband of his trousers. The cat mewed to him. Meow, he said in answer. Wait till I'm ready. Heaviness. Hot day coming. Too much trouble to fag up the stairs to the landing. A paper. He liked to read at stool. Hope no ape comes knocking just as I'm... In the table drawer, he found an old number of titbits. He folded it under his armpit, went to the door and opened it. The cat went up in soft bounds. Ah, wanted to go upstairs, curl up in a ball on the bed. Listening, he heard her voice. Come, come, pussy, come. He went out through the back door into the garden, stood to listen towards the next garden. No sound. Perhaps hanging clothes out to dry. The maid was in the garden. Fine morning. He bent down to regard a lean file of spearmint growing by the wall. Make a summer house here. Scarlet runners, Virginia creepers. Want to manure the whole place over. Scabby soil. A coat of liver of sulphur. All soil like that without dung. Household slops. Loam. What is this that is? The hens in the next garden, their droppings are very good top dressing. Best of all, though, are the cattle, especially when they're fed on those oil cakes. Mulch of dung. Best thing to clean ladies' kid gloves. Dirty cleans. Ashes, too. Reclaim the whole place. Grow peas in that corner there. Lettuce. Always have fresh greens, then. Still gardens have their drawbacks. That be your blue bottle here with Monday. He walked on. Where is my hat, by the way? Must have put it back on the peg. Or hanging up on the floor. Funny I don't remember that. Hall stand too full. Four umbrellas, her rain cloak. Picking up the letters. Drago's shop bell ringing. Queer I was just thinking that moment. Brown, brilliantined hair over his collar. Just had a wash and brush up. Wonder have I time for a bath this morning. Tara Street. Chap in the pay box there got away James Stevens, they say. O'Brien. Deep voice that fellow Glugax has. Agenda, what is it? Now, my miss, enthusiast. He kicked open the crazy door of the Jakes. Better be careful not to get these trousers dirty for the funeral. He went in, bowing his head under the low lintel. Leaving the door ajar, amid the stench of mouldy lime wash and stale cobwebs, he undid his braces. Before sitting down, he peered through a chink up at the next door window. The king was in his counting house. Nobody. A squat on the crook stool, he folded out his paper, turning its pages over on his bared knees. Something new and easy. No great hurry. Keep it a bit. Our prize titbit. Matcham's Masterstroke. Written by Mr. Philip Beaufoy, Playgoers Club London. Payment at the rate of one guinea a column has been made to the writer. Three and a half. Three pounds three. Three pounds thirteen at six. Quietly he read, restraining himself. The first column and... Yielding but resisting, began the second. Midway, his last resistance yielding, he allowed his bowels to ease themselves quietly as he read. 
reading still patiently. That slight constipation of yesterday quite gone. Hope it's not too big. Bring on piles again. No, just right. So. Uh, costive one tabloid of Cascara Sagrada. Life might be so. It did not move or touch him, but it was something quick and neat. Print anything now, silly season. He read on, seated calm above his own rising smell. Neat, certainly. Matcham often thinks of the masterstroke by which he won the laughing witch who now begins and ends morally, hand in hand, smart. He glanced back through what he had read, and while feeling his water flow quietly, he envied kindly Mr. Beaufoy, who had written it and received payment of three pounds thirteen and six. Might manage a sketch by Mr. and Mrs. L. M. Bloom. Invent a story for some proverb which... Time I used to try jotting down on my cuff what she had said dressing. Dislike dressing together. Nicked myself shaving. Biting her nether lip, hooking the placket of her skirt. Timing her. 9.15, did Roberts pay you yet? 9.20, what had Greta Conroy on? 9.23, what possessed me to buy this comb? 9.24, I'm swelled after that cabbage. You've been listening to an excerpt from episode four, Calypso, from James Joyce's Ulysses, the 1982 recording by the RTE Players, directed by William Stiles and recorded by Marcus MacDonald. Ronnie Walsh played Leopold Bloom and Peg Monaghan played Molly. For full production credits, go to rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Our season continues next week when Michael West turns his attention to the Cyclops episode. And all of this anticipates what's fast becoming an annual tradition, the upcoming broadcast this Bloomsday of Ulysses in its entirety on RTE Radio 1 Extra. And to make it a true marathon this year, Ulysses will be followed by the RTE Players adaptation of Dubliners and Joyce's play Exiles. But of course, all of this material is available to listen to anytime you like at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. This Bloomsday. And then I asked him with my eyes to ask again. Shut your eyes and see the world of James Joyce. And then he asked me, would I? Yes, to say yes, my mountain flower. The complete Ulysses, Exiles and Dubliners. And first I put my arms round him, yes. Streaming and online. And drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume, yes. June 16th from 8am. And his heart was going like mad. Bloomsday 100. Yes, I said yes. On RTE Radio 1 Extra. I will, yes. Bloomsday 100 on RTE. You will, yes. Yes, yes. RTE.ie forward slash drama on one.